it would be a great help for you to uh, to be a part of that. All right, well, we are continuing our study on uh, biblical counseling, that is personal ministry to one another within the body of believers, and we could sum up kind of the theme of the class as speaking the truth to one another in love. We have a clear mandate, responsibility to do that. That's not something left for the professionals. It's not left for the church leaders. It's it's something that's commanded for every believer. Speak the truth to one another in love. And um, so we talked about how that that must be that must be bathed in love. And then um, last week we looked at the or last two weeks we looked at the topic of knowing. We need to try to understand what the the issue is at stake. We can't just assume that we know and then try to help in that way because actually that won't help. We need to uh, collect the data and then organize the data in such a way that we can understand it. And that's what we spent a lot of time looking at last week, these four hooks that we place all of the data on so that we can uh, we can think about it from a biblical perspective. So first, we need to know the situation. So we just ask them what is going on. We want to gather facts about what has taken place. Then we want to know the responses. How have they responded to what is going on? And then we want to know their thoughts. What do they think about what's going on? And then their motives. Uh, what are the goals that they have with regard to what is going on? And so once we have all that information, then what do we do with it? Well, this week and next week, we want to think about uh, speaking the truth to them based on this information that we've collected, and now we, we start to organize it in ways that we can think about it biblically and then help them. We speak to each each part of it and, and help them in that way. So this, this week we want to look at the goals of speaking the truth in love, and then we'll get more into the practice of it or the execution of it next week. All right? So the goals of speaking the truth in love. And when it comes to speaking to a person... It's going to require for us to do what the Bible calls rebuke or confrontation. And, oh, sorry. Thank you. Um, so, so how does confrontation and love fit together? How do confrontation and love fit together? According to the Scriptures, confrontation and rebuke are really forms of love. But if we think about it, no one wants to be loved in this way. Right? If, if I gave you a choice, which would, would you rather have? Would you like for me to come up to you after the service and rebuke you, or would you rather have a root canal with no Novocaine? And the fact that you're thinking about that tells me that, that you don't want to be rebuked. I don't want to be rebuked, right? We, when we think of rebuke, we think of harsh words and red faces and a long list of responsibilities and ultimatums and threats. But... Really, rebuke or confrontation should be done in the spirit of love and actually should should be done patiently and with the person's spiritual well-being in mind. And um, so, as we'll see today, confrontation is part of our personal ministry to one another. It's actually part of speaking the truth in love. So, several things we want to think about with regard to confrontation. Number one, it's rooted in the first great commandment. What is the first great commandment? In other words, how can we summarize the first four of the Ten Commandments? How does Jesus summarize them? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Matthew 22:37. Okay, so if we're going to confront people, it starts with our love for God. Trip, uh, Paul Tripp in his book argues that the only way that we're going to co- confront people about their sin is when we move away from our tendency to run to what he calls God replacements. That is, we value something else more than God. This is why we don't rebuke people when we ought to. This is why we don't confront people. It's because we've, we've set up God replacements. Some, something that we value more than God. We don't want to risk losing something, right? Like maybe it's just a, a, a cordial relationship. And we feel like if we rebuke that person, then, you know, it's gonna, there's going to be a little tension here between the two of us. Or we, we, we have a comfort level between this person and that, and we're able to speak on at least surface level terms. And if we rebuke them, it's going to be uncomfortable. And so he would call that, Tripp would call that a God replacement. But he argues that if we love God supremely, then confronting other people is actually an extension of that love. So turn to 1 John chapter 4. If we love God supremely, then we will be willing to confront when necessary. 1 John chapter 4. And what we want to see here is that our love for other people is an extension of our love for God. Would someone read verses 20, 20 and 21? So we can't love our neighbor as ourself if we first do not love God above all else. If we fail to confront people, if we trim the truth in order to avoid conflict, if we're constantly gossiping about others, then it exposes something deeper in our hearts. And that is a lack of love for God. If we don't love our brother whom we have seen, then we can't love God whom we have not seen. That's what John says. So that is, so so we need to recognize that if we're going to be ambassadors of God then the relationships are not set up in our life in order to serve us but these relationships are set up in order for us to serve God that that we do his purposes and part of his purposes on occasion is going to be confronting them with the difficult truth sometimes Okay so it's it's rooted in the first great commandment And when we confront this way, our confrontation doesn't come out red-faced and full of vengeance and hatred and frustration and anger. It comes out from a heart that's motivated to draw that person to God where they belong and where they they will have their greatest joy in in a right relationship with God. Number two, confrontation is rooted in the second great commandment to love others. Our culture puts a high premium on tolerance and politeness and being nice to the exclusion of truth. And the danger for us as Christians is that we can convince ourselves not to confront because we want to show love to that person. Because I love that person so much, I'm not going to confront them. 
You know, I think it would be, they would rather that I didn't confront them. But the opposite is actually the case. Now, some of us have a tendency to be offensively intrusive or rude or live like busybodies. That's not what biblical confrontation is. And we'll get to that here as we move along. But, but for most of us, we just want to keep the status quo. We don't want to confront sin. We see the sin. We see the doctrinal deviation. But we don't want to rock the boat. I mean, how would that mentality work as a parent? You know, I see my child sinning, but I don't want them to dislike me, so I'm not going to say anything about the sin that they're committing. What does Proverbs say about that kind of parent? He hates the child, right? If you don't discipline your child, if you don't confront them with the truth and turn them back toward right, you actually hate your child. Now, obviously, we aren't parents to, you know, each other. So it's not a perfect cor- uh, it's not a perfect corollary, but but I think the same principle applies. If someone, if you see someone wandering away, being enslaved to the pleasures of sin, and you let them go, don't say that you love them while you're letting them go. You don't love them. Someone's walking toward a cliff with a blindfold on. You think. You know, I would say something, but they might get mad at me. And our our relationship might be changed. So I'm just going to let them go. I mean, it's silly to think about, but that's what we often do when it comes to sin because we don't... We, either we don't think it's as bad as as it appears or we just, frankly, don't like the... Per, or we, we frankly hate the person. We We don't love the person like we ought to and we're not willing to confront their sin the truth is that we fail to confront other people not because we love them but because we love ourselves too much And so if we're going to confront people it's rooted in the two great commandments love the Lord your God with all your heart commandments 1 through 4 and love your neighbor as yourself commandments 6 through 10 um, 5 through 10 excuse me alright thirdly Confrontation is our moral responsibility in every relationship. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It is our moral responsibility in every relationship. Paul's given instructions here to the believers in Thessalonica. And he gives three ways in which we should treat people based on the way that their their circumstances uh, currently are. Verse, 15, uh, verse 14, We urge you, brethren, admonish or warn the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Okay, so I say three ways. There's four listed there. But be patient with everyone, I think, is all-encompassing. This is how we treat everybody. But... But you're going to come across people who are unruly. And so with the unruly, you need to admonish them. You need to warn them. You're going to come across people who are weak. And so if you see someone weak today, help them. You're going to come across people who are um, faint-hearted. And, and if you see someone who's discouraged or, or faint-hearted, then you need to encourage them. Okay, This is just a, a great way to think about how can I serve other people today? What kind of need do they have and how can I help them? And there's three uh, 
clear ways that we can do that. The first one, we, we want to focus on the first one, which is admonish the unruly. Our responsibility is to warn those who are living in opposition to the Word of God. And I think this passage is directed not at everybody just on the street. Okay, so we got our neighbor and he's being unruly, so I need to warn him. Well, in the sense you do, warn him about the wrath to come. Don't warn him necessarily about his rock music and you know his his uh, his his immoral lifestyle. That that's if that leads to a gospel conversation, then yes. But this is directed at people, not that we don't know, but it's directed at people within which organization. The church, right? Because who's Paul talking to in First Thessalonians? He's talking to believers in Thessalonica and he's saying, warn them. People that are part of this body, you need to warn them. You need to confront them about their sin. When we think of rebuke, we think of a one-time type of thing. Like something that's built up and now it's like intervention time. And we're just going to list out all the problems and now they this is their ultimatum they need to they need to meet but really loving rebuke is better it it should not um it should not exclude that kind of confrontation occasionally those things are going to to get out of hand and they need to be confronted and again it'd be wrong for us to let them go but but loving confrontation often comes in the form of many confrontations okay not many like unimportant but many in the fact that it's it's not boiled up to the, the 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 worst part and now it's got to be addressed. Genuine love uh, takes small moments in their lives and speaks truth to them. Okay? Similar to a good marriage relationship. That that you're you're constantly challenging your spouse with, you know, is this really what God wants for you? So instead of Instead of just, you know, oh man, they're doing that and, and that and that and now it's building up and moving farther away from God and now, okay, it's time to sit down, honey, right? Genuine love doesn't walk away uh, at the first sign of someone's sin. Instead, it says, I am going to extend you the grace that I've received from God and, and, um, and I'm here to rescue you. And the best way that that happens is as we're constantly deepening our relationships to a point where we can confront in small ways so that they don't get to the place where they get get into the deeper sins. Now, let me be clear, because now it sounds like, okay, now my job is to be Mr. Moral Police Officer, and I'm going to be that person's conscience. So whatever they do, I'm going to show them whether it's right or wrong. So I'm going to just go around the church and telling people what's right and what's wrong. Okay, don't walk around self-righteously as if you have it all figured out. We are all people in need of change who are helping people in need of change. And when we get to the place where we think that we are without sin and that we are above everybody else and that we can't be corrected ourselves, then we fail. Okay, So, so wanna, I, I just want to encourage us in that way that... that um, you know, if we, if we come to a place of self-righteousness, then then we're not actually going to be able to help the other person um, because they're going to see the be- the large beam in our eye while while they're taking out the little sliver in ours. All right.
Number four, confrontation is meant to be more of a lifestyle than a, an unusual event. This is kind of similar to what I just said. Um, you know, the reason why parents and teenagers struggle sometimes is because parents make confrontation rare, um, and especially with teenagers because there's a, a, a boiling point there. And so when confrontation comes, it's like a bomb going off. But if we make it a regular pattern in our lives of constantly conversing with our children and challenging them, then we'll be much much better off. And I think the same thing is true uh, with our relationships within the church. It's better to develop deep relationships, at least with some people, so that they will be conducive for um, moments of confrontation rather than the, the, the messenger of rebuke approach, which is, here you go, here's your package of rebuke, and when they open it, it's like, boom. Um, so it's, it's better it, it's better if it's in the, the many confrontations developing a deeper relationship obviously you can't develop a deep relationship with every single believer but but you should have some in which you can uh, Tripp argues that we fail to confront in love because we have yielded to subtle and passive forms of hatred Okay, and this is kind of what I was talking about before with Proverbs, that if we hate our children, then we won't discipline them. Um, and and there's a similar principle that's that's um, that that we could take, and that is that if we if we hate one another, then we're not going to confront them. And and it com- often comes in subtle ways. If we fail to love a person, it's not just that we've missed the mark or we failed to give them what is most helpful for them. We've actually expressed a form of hatred. He, he argues there's no middle ground between love and hate. You either love someone or you hate them. One subtle form of hatred is favoritism, granting favor to someone but refusing it to others because of a personal standard that we've set up, maybe because of economic status. You know, someone doesn't make the same amount of money that I do, and so I, I treat them differently, or because of their race, or because of their physical appearance. Or some people just aren't like us, and so they're outside the circle of our favor. Is that possible? Is it possible for us to have favoritism within a church? <clears throat> the second form of passive hatred is bearing a grudge, keeping a record of wrong that was done against us, that we rehearse it in our minds, and then every action that that person does it builds on what they had done before, and then that builds this case against that person, and so this grudge just keeps getting bigger and bigger. No matter what the other person does, even if it is right and good and in the right, done in the right motive, it doesn't matter. Nothing can be done right in that person's eyes because bitterness and, and this grudge have distorted who the person really is. So, so we fail to confront because we've yielded to passive forms of hatred. We also fail to confront in love because we 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 um, yielded to more active forms of hatred. And he, he lists three for, for us in the book. First, injustice. Injustice perverts God's system of restraint. It doesn't protect, correct, restrain the sinner. It hurts and mistreats. Second, gossip. Gossip confesses the sin of another person to someone who's not involved. Okay, it's saying something behind someone's back that we would never say to their face. It doesn't restrain sin. It's not, in, it's not concerned about the person's spiritual well-being. It doesn't build a person's character. It actually destroys his reputation. 
And then the third form of acted hatred is revenge. Look at verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Revenge is the opposite of personal ministry. Ministry is concerned about someone's good. Revenge is concerned with harming them. Like, they did this to me. It was about like the negative point system that we talked about last Sunday night. Because of all this, I've got all this negative, these negative points built up, and so I'm allowed to balance that out with some negative points that I can send their way. I can do something bad to them. That's revenge, wanting their harm. Jesus prayed in John 17 that our unity as believers would be like the unity in the Godhead. Any conflict going on between God the Father, God the Son, even those are structures set up there, any conflict between the Holy Spirit and God, God the Father. Hey, that's the kind of unity God's looking for in believers. And that's the kind of unity Jesus prayed that would be in our church. This is genuine love. And this is the kind of love that should be displayed to highlight the love of God. Alright, a couple more thoughts on confrontation, but uh, let me just take some time to see if you have any questions or comments. Alright. Next, proper biblical confrontation is never motivated by impatience, frustration, hurt, or anger. It's amazing that even our closest relationships can actually turn into a source of of frustration and hurt and anger. That it can turn into a cycle of accusation and revenge because we built up this feeling of impatience and, and hurt no one starts out in a relationship this way, right? But, but failure to confront our own sin and, when necessary, the sin of the other person will eventually lead to this. And there will be a constant cycle of, you know, the the person offending and then the person offended and now offense back the other way and just this hurt and anger and it just keeps cycling and, and boiling up. And if we are sinners living among sinners, then we need God to rescue us from ourselves. And the means by which He does that is not anything magical. Okay, It's just through us, each of us as believers who recognize the importance of a right relationship with God, of, of the spiritual well-being of the other person. It is speaking the truth to one another in love. That's how God pulls us out of that cycle that's driving us toward destruction. And then lastly, confrontation does not force a person to deal with you, but places him or compels that person to go before the Lord. The most important confrontation is not the confrontation that the person has with you. It's the confrontation that they have with Christ. It's not about the person facing your judgment. It's about the person doing business with God. It's about them receiving the grace of conviction and confession and forgiveness and repentance. So our confrontation is not motivated by punishment, but by the hope that the Lord will free this person from the sin that is entangling them, that is enslaving them, so that they can know the freedom of walking in fellowship with Him. Alright, so there's the need for biblical confrontation. Next we want to see the, that biblical confrontation starts with our own heart. 
if I'm going to be a tool used by God, then I need to check my own heart first. This is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, of, of checking ourselves before we go and, and rebuke someone else. Am I doing something that would hinder what God is intending to do in this person's life? Do I have an agenda that's different from God's agenda? Okay, so if we're going to, to, to help them properly, we need to think about our own heart. So, so here are the dangers of neglecting the preparation of our own heart. We turn... We turn moments of ministry into moments of anger. That person sinned against me and I'm not willing to forgive them and so I'm going to respond with anger. And that's why there are fights and wars among us, James says. Right? Because we have something that we... or, or we don't have what we want. We, we lust after something that we want some kind of uh, notoriety or some kind of relationship or some kind of position. And because we don't get that and because we can't forgive that person who's not giving it to us, then we're going to respond with anger. Another danger of neglecting our heart is that we personalize what is not personal. It is hard to to get away from this one because when we are when we are sinned against, it's hard not to take that personally. But what we need to recognize is that more important than these horizontal offenses that are made against us are the vertical offenses that they're making against God. And so I should be less concerned about how I am treated and more concerned about how that person is treating God. What does this mean for their relationship with God? What does this mean for the reputation of God? And so we have to guard ourselves against personalizing what is not personal. Again, we don't want to take the other extreme and just treat people coldly and callously uh, like we're robots and just, hey, I'm going to go deal with the sin and I don't care how this turns out. Um, That's not the point of this this uh, bullet point here, but but we we do tend to personalize what is not personal. Another danger of neglecting our own heart is that we put on combat gear. Okay, this kind of goes along with the first one that we respond in anger. But the more that we're hurt and we fail to deal with it, the more we will be opposed in our approach to those who hurt us. We're going to be the adversary. It's sad but too often true that we become the adversaries of the people that we're called to help. Even the people that are closest to us, you know, those of us who are married, we can even become adversaries to the people that we're called to live with and to to help. So we, we need to check our hearts, otherwise that kind of thing can happen. We confuse our own opinion with God's will. Dealing with someone who's struggling with sin, and the last thing that they need is our opinion. What they, what, what that person thinks we need. What they need is God's perspective. They need to know what God wants. They they need to see what God is calling them to do. And that's why it's so important to check our own hearts so that we make sure that we're not just bringing about our agenda. Well, here's the trouble that's happening, and it's creating a big stir. And if I can just, you know 
settle this down, then it will be better for my image, it would be better for our church's image, that sort of thing. Rather than, okay, what's God's agenda in this big stir that's been created? What does God want out of this? We've got to check our heart in order to avoid that. If we don't check our heart, we'll settle for quick solutions that don't address the heart. Okay, Again, if I don't prepare my heart, then I'm not going to be concerned about theirs. I'm not going to be concerned about what God wants. I'll, I will um, be more concerned with just get ridding, getting rid of the headache, you know, getting rid of the surface issue, um, just covering it up. And um, so we have to we have to guard against that. Is it possible that that these struggles that are coming up within the body of believers are part of God's ordained plan? Is it possible that God planned for that person to be in our life? Is it possible that God can transform that person and at the same time not neglect you? Is it possible that He can transform that person through you speaking the truth to them and at the same time care for your needs? Perhaps God is using that person to expose areas in which you need to grow, right? Maybe their sin actually exposes something in you. Maybe you need to depend upon God more. The point is that God, God's not going to abandon you when you feel like, man, I feel like I'm the only one that can, that can address this problem. I've got the deep relationship with this person. I don't want to confront them. I need to, but I don't want to. God's not going to abandon you. He is fighting for you. He's fighting for that person's heart. And and He will not let you go. Alright? So start with your own heart, otherwise you'll be in danger of of making the situation worse in many times or or creating new new struggles in your own life. Any questions or comments? All right. Starts with their own heart. It also starts with right goals. Why is it that biblical confrontation is so important? Well, number one, it's important because of the deceitfulness of sin. Sin blinds our hearts. And sometimes it can be like you're driving down the road and you have a blind spot. You didn't realize that there was someone over in the lane next to you as you're pulling, as you're trying to get into that lane. So it may be an occasional blind spot. You need to get better at, at spotting those things. Or it could be a complete blackout. But as long as sin, indwelling sin exists, we need one another. We need one another to help us to see ourselves clearly. And so starting with the right goals means that, that we under, <coughs> understand <coughs> the deceitfulness of sin. We also understand that people often have, including ourselves, wrong and unbiblical thinking. We are all theologians. We all make choices about what we think about God and what we think about the Scriptures and what we think about ourselves and what we think about sin. And many times we think about those things wrongly. And that's why we constantly need to be washed by the Word of God as people speak it to us. Obviously, one of the 
the most important ways that happens is through the preaching of God's Word that we have every week, several times a week. That's one great way for God to, to renew our minds, to constantly refine it so that we understand properly um, the, the things of life. And, and we have to keep... It's not like we get to a point like, okay, well, I've had enough training. I've, I've understood enough of the Scriptures and now I understand a proper theology. So I'm inside this, this, uh, this gated area and I'm protected. The problem is we are constantly being bombarded by sin, our own heart, our flesh, right? the devil, the world constantly bombarding us with false thinking, with improper thinking. And that's why we need to be... And it, So our, our thinking just is constantly being distorted and that's why the Spirit comes along and constantly refines it, keeps improving it. And we need each other for that. Biblical confrontation is also critical because of emotional thinking. I don't know if you thought about this, but but we don't think best in the middle of suffering. We don't think best in the middle of difficulties and distress. We don't think best when our emotions are raging. raging. We often forget what God has done. And so it is a gracious gift for God to come alongside of us through a believer that He's put into our lives to help us to remember what we need to remember. This is Israel's problem that we'll see this morning in Exodus is that they're in the middle of this great difficulty and they forget all the great things that God has done, even just a few days earlier. <clears throat> and and that's because the emotions are high, there's a lot of fear going on, and we need people to come alongside us and to lovingly say, listen, God is on your side. God is for you. God will not abandon you. It's also critical because of experiential thinking. Our view of life tends to be shaped by our experiences. And so, okay, we, we tend to build our understanding of how things work based on how we've experienced things. Well, this is going to happen if I take this step because back here I took that same step and that's how it happened. But experiential thinking is not necessarily biblical thinking because I hope you recognize that the world also has experiences and they base their understanding of, on how things work based on their experience. And they often come to wrong conclusions. And so I need someone who really loves me to intervene with the truth of God's Word. And that's why biblical confrontation is so critical. As a result, our responsibility, if we're going to speak the truth to one another in love, we need to be people who are holding up the mirror of God's Word. That image of the mirror comes from 2 Corinthians 3.18. That we're constantly looking into the Word so that it reveals who we are and shows us what we ought to think about the Bible. shows us our sin. Or, or James talks about, you know, the person who goes in front of the mirror, sees all the problems, and doesn't do anything about them. He just walks away. Okay, that, that's the idea. Of we want to hold that mirror up because a lot of times what we, we tend to do is we, we speak down to the person. We, Here's what you need to do. Let me put you back on the right path. And the best thing to do is say, listen, I'm speaking on the authority of God's Word. Come, come with me and look at this mirror because... This is something that you need to see. 
You need to see this, this, this is coming from God, not from me. So hold up the mirror. It's not about our opinion. It's about what God's Word says. And because it's critical, we must also direct them toward genuine heart change. This is what we talked about from the beginning of this, this um, session, the, these set of classes, is that, that we need to direct them toward genuine heart change. It's not enough for them to just change their behavior so that the consequences go away. We're not pressuring them into external conformity in order to reduce our burden. So we work hard to say say the things that need to be said. Ask the right questions. Find out what is in their heart. And then connect the dots for them based on what the Scriptures say. We are working with people who are usurping the authority of the King to their own detriment. The King has set down a demand, a decree, and we see them as the subject of the King. We also are subjects of the King. And we see them as as disobeying what the king has said. And we're saying, listen, when the king comes, he's not going to be pleased. Let's get back in line. Let me show you what he said. And find joy in, in submitting to him. It's actually good for you. All right, turn to Romans 8. We'll just have to kind of summarize this passage here. <clears throat> Any questions? All right, finally, don't leave the gospel at the door. We can't forget that people, even Christians, need to be reminded of the Gospel. Is that true? Absolutely, right? They need to be reminded of their identity in Christ. They need to be reminded of God's love for them. They need to be reminded of the promise of forgiveness. They need to be reminded of the Holy Spirit that lives within them, who gives them strength to obey. They need to be reminded of the gospel, and there are two parts of the gospel um, that we can think about here in Romans chapter eight. There is first the comfort of the gospel, and then secondly the call, um, the call of the gospel. In Romans eight verses one through eleven, we see two powerful realities. That is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans eight verse one that Jesus fully paid the penalty of their sin, past, present, and future, that Christ's work is enough to satisfy God's anger. And so we need to remind them of that. We need to give them the comfort of the gospel, show them the deep confidence in Christ's work that is effective for them. People need to know that they are forgiven. And then the second powerful reality under the comfort of the gospel is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's indwelling. Before Christ saved us, saved us, we were controlled by our sin nature. It was our master, but now God lives within us. And so it wasn't enough for God just to forgive us of our sins, for Jesus to die for us. He also wanted change to happen within us. And so He sent to us in in the person of the Holy Spirit one who would be our comforter, one who would be our director, one who would lead us. And so there's great comfort in that. Help people to understand that. Remind them about that. This passage is a great one to remind them of that truth. Verses 1-11. through 11. And then the call of the Gospel. Okay? 
if if we just comfort people in the gospel, hey, you're you're in Christ. All your sins are forgiven. We haven't done enough. Because the gospel needs to be balanced. If if we only tell them about the comfort of the gospel, we lead them to what's called antinomianism. That is no law. You say, well, the gospel is enough to save you and you don't know you need to do anything with your life. It doesn't matter how you live. Then what's that lead to? A life that says, oh, I can live however I want. And that's not the gospel. We have become we have come to an imbalanced um, view of the gospel. In fact, God saved you to do good works. Ephesians 2.10 Therefore, we must live to glorify God in our bodies. And it's not enough for us to just talk about the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is, listen, this is how you ought to live. Based on this, you know, verse 12, Therefore, we are under obligation. That's how Paul says it. We are under obligation. Does that sound like gospel? It is gospel. Because of Christ freeing you from the enslavement that you were once in, you are under obligation not to live in the flesh. This is what you need to tell people who are struggling with sin. Both, they should be comforted by the fact that they can do nothing more to add to their salvation. But at the same time, they are now under obligation. They are now bond servants, slaves of God. And verses 12 through 17 speak to that effect. See, God is working to eradicate sin through the the search and destroy mission of the Holy Spirit. And I have no right to live according to the sinful nature. When I do, I deny the gospel and my identity as a child of God. So, that means if we are dealing with someone, let's just make up an example of a person who's beating his wife. Okay, We might emphasize to that person the call of the gospel. You need to eradicate sin. Is that true? Yes. Do we exclude this part of the Gospel? The comfort to this man who needs to be reminded about God's love for him? Who needs to be reminded reminded that he needs to step out from the denials and the rationalizations and and confess the sin, recognize God's love for him, and, and move on to eradicate the sin? See, we tend to we see the person who's struggling in this way, we tend to focus on the call of the gospel. We need to give them both. Now, let's think of his wife who's being beaten by this man. For her, we tend to emphasize which part of the gospel? The comfort. God loves you. God's still on your side. And yes, we should do that. But should we exclude the call of the gospel to this woman who might be building up a grudge against him now? Who, who may be tempted to become bitter and to give up on him? To give up on God? Right? We need to remind her of both the comfort and the call of the gospel. We need to have a balanced approach. Approach. The goal of biblical confrontation is not to force behavioral change, but to encourage people to live consistently with their nature, their new nature as children of God. We want to open people's eyes to the grace of Christ and so that they can see the, the great gravity of their sin as they look in the mirror of God's Word. True biblical confrontation rebukes people with much more than their sins and their failures. It, it rebukes them and confronts them with Christ. And it shows them who He is, what He's done for them, and what He demands of them. And we need to, to recognize that the only hope for real change is by pointing them back to Christ.
Any questions or comments? Corey? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, we are looking for instant change, instant results, and sometimes we we tailor our confrontation to that desire. And that's that's where I think it comes into play that we we have a different agenda than God's agenda. And if if we are willing to take God's agenda and go to that person, then it's going to mean ongoing relationship and continual confrontation as the sin uh, surfaces. Willingness to um, to strengthen the relationship there. Uh, most importantly, their relationship with God. Sandra? Starts with the right goals. Um, oh, Second Corinthians three eighteen, talking about the mirror of God's word. I think that was the one. Yeah. Let me hold up the mirror. All right, let's pray. I'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for uh, bringing the light of the truth to view in our lives through the power of your word, through the gospel through people who love us. We pray that You'd continue to help us to be that kind of of person, to be the person who's willing to confront when sin is exposed and, um, and, to, and to be willing to do it often and lovingly and, and with patience and uh, with the goal in mind that, that they would be drawn to a proper relationship with You. And I pray that the result would be that our unity as a church would be like the unity within uh, the three persons of the Godhead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.